Good morning. Good morning. Hey, if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 6, verse 46. And while I'm doing that, would you all thank uh, Casey and the, what was the Casey band? Casey and the Good Time Boys or something? No, Casey and the band, yeah. Now, Casey's uh, visiting this morning uh, because Toby, who usually leads us in worship, got great news. He's on baby watch. Oh, everybody groans. Why do you groan? Because not yet, but it's coming. So uh, be praying for, for, uh, for Toby and maybe pray for Jordan too. But you know, it's Toby. As a man, I identify with what men go through when women have babies. Can you identify with that? Yeah, John says thumbs up. Yeah, my wife says we'll talk about this later. Yeah. So be praying Praying for uh, Toby and Jordan. What a blessing on the way. But in the meantime, we get blessed by Casey and the band and really appreciate him coming. Luke chapter 6. You know, as we learned a few weeks ago when Ryan transitioned us, actually Matt transitioned us first, out of this stories of uh, the life and the, and the ministry of, uh, of, uh, of Jesus. That's the guy, right? I just drew a blank there. But as we've been studying the life of Jesus, who is this man? And then we transition into one of the greatest sermons that Jesus ever gave in his life. In fact, if you study great, uh, great messages in history, uh, this sermon is the shorter version of a longer version in Matthew chapter 7 of this thing called the Sermon on the Mount. And it, it's, it's, it's the essence of this sermon is considered one of the greatest bits of wisdom ever communicated to mankind. Even those who don't fully believe in Jesus respect what he's saying in this message. And it's a radical message. We've been looking at how it rattled their view of what we call the good life or the blessed life. For example, Jesus really, I think the phrase Ryan used was, flips it upside down when he says, woe to you. And let me show you some statements. Woe to you. Uh, Woe to you when you are rich and laughing and well-fed and well-liked if all these things are for this life only, if they're not for something deeper that lasts. So what he's saying is, you know, you can be rich, well-fed, laughing, well-liked. Now, that's not a bad list, right? In fact, I vote for that list. And Jesus isn't saying that it's wrong to experience the blessing of hard work or or wealth or being well-liked or any of that. What he's saying is, if it's in this life only, woe to you. And then he flips it and he says, blessed are, blessed are, and he gives this list. Blessed are the poor, the weeping, the hungry, the hated, if it's for my sake. If it's your experience because you know me and you're a part of the kingdom of God, which is a forever kingdom. So, you know, this is a radical flipping upside down the definition of what most people devote their lives to live for. He rattled their thinking. He also gave them not just a new way to think what life is, where real life is. He, gave, he went on uh, to begin to explore with them. And, and there is a life that Those who are following me, those who are part of the kingdom of God, we want to bring the kingdom of heaven down to earth. 
We want to begin to live out a lifestyle on the planet that's radically different, defined especially by a radical love. What we learned a couple weeks ago is an agape love, an unconditional love, a love that's not based on how people treat you, but even applies not just to your friends, but to your enemies. I love the phrase, just to kind of set up today, because we're going we're gonna to see why I'm reviewing in just a minute. But when Ryan spoke on this a couple weeks ago, he used the phrase that he, he explained that for the Jews, they were under extreme oppression by the Romans. So when Jesus says something like, you know, just love your friends, love your enemies. You know, most of us just think of an enemy, somebody we kind of don't get along with. Uh, I think you were thinking about your favorite or worst boss in life, which I think Ryan was probably thinking, Dale, I don't know. But, you know, but whoever it is, it wasn't that. It was much more serious forms of oppression and mistreatment. They were just enemies. They were not just enemies, but Jesus went on to say, love those who hate you, love those who curse you, you know, and, and you begin to listen to that you begin to realize, what were those people thinking as they listened to Jesus? Because as Jesus is progressing through this message, as important as it is, Jesus is about to conclude the message. Now, we're studying the message in four pieces, but Jesus delivered it in one chunk, right? And and, and what we're coming up to now, whether you study the long version or the short version of this great message to humanity, Jesus is about to give the final couple minutes of the message. I mean, he's coming to his conclusion. He knows what's in the mind of his people. And if I were to guess what's in the mind of that audience, what if you were listening for the first time, being told, you know, you're supposed to actually have joy even if you are experiencing, go back one slide, even if you're experiencing, not this one, yeah, you're supposed to have joy not just for this, but the next slide. If you are poor, weeping, hungry, hated, but you're a part of the kingdom of God, you have reason to rejoice. So Jesus is rattled their thinking and then he went on to challenge the level of their love that they're supposed to have as a lifestyle my guess is if i were to pick one word you would be feeling what hopeless wow jesus this is a pretty radical message may go down in history but there is no way i can live like this i know that's what i'd be feeling I've had times in my life where I try to live like that, and I miserably fail. So if you identify with that, what Jesus is going to do now is he's going to flip, and he's going to tell you why this can actually be done. Because you're probably feeling like this. Following Jesus is not difficult, it's impossible. In fact, read that with me. It's on the screen. Following Jesus is not difficult, it's impossible. And what I want to show you today is understanding this statement is the secret to beginning to actually be able to follow Jesus. You see, when Jesus taught his radical teachings, he didn't end the sermon by saying, so, you know, guys, I believe in you. You got this. You got this. I know you can do this. Just, just buckle down. Try a little harder. Anybody can live like me if you just try a little harder. Jesus didn't say that. So what did he say that infused a sense of hope into his audience? Let's read it together. Here we go. Here we go. Pick it up. 
Luke 6, 46. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? In other words, you, you, you believe in me and you do not do what I say. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and then acts on them. Let me show you who he's like. He's like a man and he gives a parable. Now, the person that hears what I'm teaching and actually acts on it, follows it, believes it and follows it, here's what this guy is like. He said, this guy, he's like a man building a house who dug deep and he laid the foundation of the house on the rock. And it, the word means bedrock. He dug down to the bedrock under the earth and he, he laid his foundation for his house on that bedrock. And when the floods occurred, the torrents burst against the house. The word torrent actually in, in, in Greek could be translated rivers. So what he's talking about now is when the roaring river gets out of its bank and it, and it busts against the house, when the rivers, the torrents bust against the house, it could not shake it because it had been built well. But, and now he flips it from a promise to a warning, but the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly, not taken action in response to what I'm teaching, is like a man who built his house, he just built it on the ground. He didn't want to do the work to dig down and lay it on this rock foundation. He built his house on the ground. And the torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed. And the ruin of that house was great. And then chapter 7, verse 1 says, And when he had completed all this discourse in the hearing of the people, he moved on. He went to Capernaum. So this is the end of the sermon. It's the end of the sermon here. It's the end of the sermon in Matthew chapter 7, if you want to read the long version. And the question is that Jesus introduces us to, as he launches into this parable, is this question. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? and do not do what I say. Why do you do that? That's the key question. I've given you a handout if you want to track with me through the rest of the message. It'll help you to follow along. You see, Jesus is closing the message. He knows this is the last word he's going to give, at least in this sermon. And, and, and this audience of his has been challenged to view life differently and live life differently to live and love radically differently, like the kingdom of God from heaven comes to earth. And what Jesus is doing is Jesus is giving them the solution to actually succeeding in what he has been teaching. And he says the secret is actually not in what you do, or let me say it this way, the secret is not how beautiful your house looks, it's what does it rest on. Whereas I chose the title, Foundations are Foundational. Foundations are Foundational in all of life. Let's look at the story, the lesson, and then we'll talk about putting it into practice. The story. The story is simple, short. Two builders, two homes, two outcomes, one mistake. Two builders, two homes, two outcomes, one mistake. Jesus lays it out very plainly that the basis of success or failure is not how beautiful the house is, it's about the foundation it rests on. And the reason is, he says, when the floods come, 
When the torrents burst against the house, when the floods come, you're going to find out the quality of the foundation. You're going to, you know, the, ha- the two houses can look identical from the street, but he says depending on how the foundation is laid is going to make the difference. So he says the foundation or the, the, the torrents are going to test the quality of your foundation, and they are coming. So what he's warning us to is there are going to be these tests that test our life. And we're going to come to what are those tests? What, what are they? And, and what's it mean when he says, and, and, and the failure was great, or the house stood firm? But in this parable, the bottom line is this. He says, if you dig deep and you lay the foundation of your life on the bedrock, which is Jesus Christ, he's pointing it to himself. He's basically saying the secret to living this radical life is don't build on anything but me. Don't build on anything but me. So as we look at this, there is both a promise and a warning. I want you to see that. There's good news and bad news. But this is not so much focus. He gives the good news first. He says, look, the good news is if you follow me, it will stand. So if I were to summarize this lesson of the promise warning, it would be in this statement. If you are applauding Jesus, Lord, Lord, wow, we are impressed. We believe you are God. We know you are the Messiah. If you say, Lord, Lord, if you acknowledge Jesus, applaud Jesus, but you you ignore what he says, it leads to disaster. But Jesus believed and followed leads to life. Jesus believed and followed leads to life. And by the way, he doesn't mention followed, right? He mentions followed in the sense of, he uses the phrase, he hears my words and he acts on them. So it's the action. Now in between there's the unspoken obvious, which is you got to believe it. You hear it, you believe it, and you believe it, and the test of whether you really believe it is whether you act on it. See, we know in Scripture that they talk about, you know, you can, you can say, Lord, Lord, and say, yeah, I believe in Christ, but are we listening and acting and living in response to what we say we believe? Because true faith, in fact, if you study the book of James, it says faith without action is actually dead. It's worthless. So if you want to know if your faith is alive, it's measured not by what you intellectually say you believe, but in what, he, what you actually do in response to it. That's the big idea that Jesus is bringing out. So let's talk about putting this into practice. I want to get into the very practical side of this thing. If Jesus is our bedrock, he's saying, trust me. Trust me and then live in response to that trust. When I thought about, so where does this apply? Uh, If you read the commentators, we talked about this a lot in our teaching team meeting. And uh, as Matt and Joe and Ryan and I bounced this around in the teaching team meeting, it was really helpful because what I realized is this thing applies at several different levels. In fact, I think you could apply it at least in, at least in three levels or more. So I, I picked my favorite three. Here we go. Number one, it applies to Jesus as the foundation of eternal life. In other words, that life to come. Is Jesus the foundation of your eternal life? I think that's a major part of this sermon. Jesus is teaching a radically different approach to life, view of life, 
a radically different lifestyle. In the longer version of this sermon, he repeatedly says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you. Remember that? You've heard it said, but I say to you. And in every case, he he doesn't discount what they've heard. He says, you've heard it said, um, don't commit murder, but I say to you, work on your anger. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you, work on your lust. You've heard it said, you know, love your neighbor, but I say to you, love your enemy as well. See, Jesus is creating in his audience that sense of, wow, yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a pretty exciting lifestyle. That's a radically different lifestyle. I'd love to live that way, but I, I can't do it. So he ends both sermons with this same parable. Let me tell you, the secret to succeeding is use me as your foundation, dig down, lay your house's foundation on the rock. And that rock is Christ and his words. It's Christ and all that he taught. It applies at several different levels. It especially applies because I think Jesus was, he was talking to an audience that had been taught that they could lay their life on self-righteousness. They could lay their life on obedience to the law. They could lay their life on, on you know, if I just work hard and, and, and obey all the rules, then I'll go to heaven. And Jesus obviously had, had dismantled that. Because he said, you know, some, you know, not committing murder and adultery, that's, that's, that's good. I mean, it's, I, I want you to remember that. But how about lust and anger and, and, and the inability to love your enemies? I mean, who in this room isn't guilty of all three of those sins? Who in this room can say, I've never lost my temper. I never get angry and have an outburst of anger. I never have a lustful thought towards someone that I am not married to. I have never held a grudge, and tried to do something to hurt my enemy. See, I can't raise my hand to any of those. There's times in my life I've done all three of those. There's times in your life you've done all three of those. It's sin. It's who we are. But yet in Christ, we're made new. We have new life in Christ. And and what Jesus is saying is, I am the foundation first of your eternal life. You can't build it on the sand the other sands of our culture. And the leading to other sands, what's the alternative to trusting Christ? I think it's these. In today's culture, it's self-righteousness. People that say, because I live a good life, I'm good enough. I call it the sand of self-righteousness. The second is the sand of self-comparison. I talk to people all the time. I say, well, you know, when you die, what do you, where's your destiny? Where are you headed? He says, well, they'll usually say, well, number one is, I don't know for sure. But, you know, I don't, I'm not that bad of a guy. What do they mean by that? It's the sand of self-comparison. It's, it's saying, you know, I, I look around me, and I think on a, on a curve, I, I'm in the, at least nearing the upper level of the curve. I'm better than most of the other people I know. At least I try to be. So it's the level of self-righteousness. That it's, I mean, it's the sands of self-righteousness. It's the sands of, as long as I'm better than other people. Or even another adjustment to it is, I'm better than most people, even. Okay, if you lined everybody up, I'm past the midpoint. And you think, so surely God's going to get me into heaven. And Jesus says, the wages for sin is death. The scriptures clearly teach. The reason Christ came and died was because we were hopeless 
on our own, through our own obedience to the laws of religion or morality, to, to save ourselves. We were desperately lost, and he came to pay the penalty for our sin. That's what Jesus said we should rest on. That is using him as the basis of whether or not we're going to heaven, which is a pretty important question as we live life. You can take all the other questions and line them up, and the question is, when you die, are you confident where you're going? Can you really answer that? The only way I can answer that with confidence is by listening to words of Christ. John 5.24 is the verse I picked to focus on. Whoever hears my word and believes or trusts in him, believes on him who sent me, has eternal life, period. doesn't say has a little better shot at getting in. He says has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed at that moment out of death into life. We often teach here at Seacoast that eternal life doesn't begin when you die. Eternal life begins when your sins are forgiven, when Christ is trusted. And at that moment, Jesus says, you pass out of a state of being eternally headed for death to eternal life and that promise. It is a guarantee. The people today would much rather believe in the soil, build their life on the soils of, well, I think I'm a pretty good man or woman. I think I've done my best. I think I'm better than others. Or I think I'm even better than most. Jesus says, that's like building your eternal hope on something that when it's tested, when it's tested at death, it's going to collapse on you. And the collapse will be great. So if you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, his death, his resurrection, man, you've got to do that if you want to be building your life, and especially your eternal life, on the rock. That's number one. Number two, I think it also can be applied to the life that we live. It's, Jesus is the rock or the foundation for building a changed life now. It's the rock for eternal life then. It's the rock for our change of our life now. Because you hear this sermon and you think, wow, if I could be a person that could love people that don't even love me or love people that even hurt me and I could still respond with kindness, respond with love like we've been studying the last few weeks, that would be incredible. I mean, I'd be, I'd be kind of right up there with Mother Teresa or Billy Graham, bless his heart. He's in heaven now. But Billy Graham is not in heaven because he was a great guy. You realize that? Did you have the chance to listen to him, his memorial service? If not, you should uh, go online, uh, Google it. I'm sure somebody saved it to YouTube. Go on and listen to it. They clearly explain the basis of his life and the basis of his hope in death. It was a great, it was a powerful moment. If you've never listened to it, I highly recommend it that you, uh, you go back and listen. Jesus never said, I'm going to tell you a better way to live, and if you just suck it up, it'll happen. In fact, he said just the opposite. Let me show you what he actually said. We're following the words of Jesus, the foundation for a changed life. I'm not going to put this one on the screen. Let me just read it to you. John 15, verse 4 says, Abide in me, draw your life from me, and you will bear much fruit. 
for apart from me you can do nothing. See, Jesus taught, apart from me you can do nothing. Jesus taught the Christian life is not difficult, it's impossible. Jesus taught that. That's why Jesus said, but here's your hope. Your hope is to let me be the foundation of your life. Or in John 15, he uses the metaphor of a grapevine, and he says, I am the vine. I bring the life. I, I, I provide the life. You're just a branch hanging out there, and you'll bear fruit only if you abide or draw your life from me, draw your strength from me. So this idea of building on Christ as the foundation, man, it, it, it changes everything. Now, what are the sifting sands of our culture? If for eternal life, it's self-righteousness, self-comparison with others, in terms of a changed life, the sifting sands of our culture are things like self-improvement. You know, I can just improve myself. Or, here's another one, self-reliance. You know, I think I can do whatever I want to do. You're going to hear it upcoming at graduations all around the country, every high school, every college, most of the talks you'll hear at graduation, someone will get up and they will say this, you can be anything you want to be. Now that's a great motivational talk. But it's a lie. You realize that. Most of us in this room sat through one of those graduation talks, right? How many of you in some way when you graduated, someone told you just believe in yourself and you can be all that you want to be just by believing in yourself? See, I sat through those, uh, not at Dallas Seminary, but in my undergrad, okay, coming out of Marshall University, that was the theme, okay, and I've, and I've heard those over the years, and you hear them all the time. You're going to hear snippets of graduation ceremonies beginning this week probably from different universities and colleges, and most of them will be based on you just need to believe in yourself and you can be anything you want to be, you can conquer any problem you conquer, and then we try that and we fail. And Jesus says the failure will be great when it's tested. When the storms of trying to change come against your house, it's going to collapse. But Jesus says there's hope. And the hope is you start by digging down to the rock, Jesus Christ, and you build your house your hope of eternal life. You build your hope of not just eternal life, but you build your hope of a changed life. You build it on me. Later in the epistles, uh, the Apostle Paul said things like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He said elsewhere, the life that I, I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So, you know, Jesus is the foundation of eternal life. It's the only way you can know for sure that when your life is tested before God, when you die, you will stand. It's the foundation of a changed life. If you want to have a better marriage, you go to Jesus Christ and you say, Lord, I want to study what you teach and I want to actually love my wife or my husband the way that you're teaching me to love in this sermon. You know, sometimes... Um, uh, Ryan pointed out that our enemies can be ISIS. They can be someone on the other side of the globe. They can be someone that we disagree with. Uh, they can be someone across the street. Sometimes they're on the other side of the bed. 
because you feel wounded and hurt by that person that's supposed to love you more than anybody else. And you're angry and you're frustrated. And he says, you know, so, so Jesus is the one who tells you. Jesus is the one who says, go to the word of God. Jesus is the one that says, love everyone. He doesn't exclude your family. Love everyone like I have loved you. Love with a radical love that even says, even when you hurt me, I'm going to shock you by giving you an act of kindness. Wow. So you want to diffuse an argument in a marriage or with your children or with your parents if you're in high school and you're here? That's the way to do it. It's not to just go tit for tat and you hurt me, so I'm going to hurt you, and when you quit hurting me, I'll quit hurting you. You know where that ends? It's called divorce. And then it doesn't even end there. Because it probably carries on through life. Jesus says, I got, a, I got a radical different way to live. Build your life on me. I'll tell you both how to live, but I'll also, by my spirit, give you the ability to pull it off. That's the recipe for a changed life. But the last one I wanted to end with and focus on perhaps a little more is I think in my own life, this is also a third thing. Jesus is the foundation for me trusting God whenever life hurts. Now, the reason I chose this as the third application is I think sometimes for a lot of us in this room, you've already decided maybe that you are trusting Christ for that eternal life. Maybe you're already trusting him to help you change your, your character and be different. But, you know, then all of a sudden life throws you a curveball and you feel like it's three strikes and you're out and you're wondering, God, how can I trust you when you let this happen to me? And then I pray and nothing happens. And then I pray more. And you seem to be missing on vacation or silent. See, how do I trust you? I thought about times in my life when Becky and I have had to honestly look at each other and say, you know something? What in the world is God doing? And we, don't, we didn't understand. We couldn't see the answer. Probably the biggest single test for me personally um, was spring of 1992. I was 38 years old. I was pastoring a church up on the central coast of California. We just had Easter Sunday. It was our best Sunday ever in attendance. We were building a brand new building, and the day after Easter, the, the steel girders were going up on a brand new large sanctuary. And I went home after that service and just laid on a friend's couch and took a nap after four Easter services that morning, and I was kind of feeling wiped out. And I felt okay, except I had a little bit of a headache. And I thought, well, that's normal. I mean, I got up early, and it's been a long day. And, and then I woke up the next morning, and I went to speak and say a word, and I couldn't pronounce it. I could think it, but I couldn't say it. And my speech was kind of garbled, confused. And I tried, just like I'm doing right now, but now I'm faking it for the sake of my wife. Okay. Uh, but I would think, you know, I would think, I'd look at Bill Buchanan, I'd say, hey, you know, Bill, how's up? And I'm thinking Melinda, but how, how's your wife? And I'd fake it by putting a different word in. And then I thought, what is up? 
So make a long story short, we go to a neurologist, go to a, call my doctor first, and they say, you need to get a neurological check and see if your brain is okay. Um, I said, my wife says sometimes you don't have a brain, but hopefully they'll find one. So the good news is they found one after $22,000 worth of tests, CAT scans, MRIs, uh, where they put me to sleep, and I watched the little butterflies. I mean, it's kind of cool, okay? Little lightning bolts in your eyes. And they did different tests, blood flow to the brain, checking for blood clots, etc. But what they finally found was a dark spot that showed up uh, on the scan of my brain. And the doctor said it's one of two things. It's either a brain tumor that is growing, and it happens to be located in the brain, the part of the brain that controls speech which is why it affected you. Or you've had a small stroke, you've had a stroke and you've got a bleed there and hopefully it stopped, but you've had a stroke or you've got a brain tumor. Now at age 38, those are not good options. And he said, uh, how do we know which it is? And he, he actually said, I think 70% chance is it's a brain tumor. I said, what would that mean? He says, well, the area it's in is inoperable, but we could try some new therapy, chemo, radiation, whatever. Um, and we've had pretty good success with extending life five years. Now that rattles you. That causes you to say, okay, God, I'm like serving you. Have you not noticed? You know, I'm leading this church. It's growing. We're building a new building. You know, God, I'm kind of doing everything you want me to do. Why would you take away my life between now and age 43 i got three little kids and a wife um, obviously i'm here today but it turned out uh, a follow-up test about a month later confirmed that it was shrinking not growing and that it had been a i had a bleed i had a small stroke at age 38 caused by they to this day don't know why no known cause. They finally concluded it was most likely a vascular, an AVM. Some of you medical people can know what that is probably. Arterial vascular malformation. I had a screwed up little bit, bit of blood vessels that burst. So by God's grace, it healed up. But that caused us, during that month, Becky and I had to get on our knees with God and we had to say, do we trust you? Even if this is a tumor and it takes my husband's life, do we trust you to care for us? Do we trust your, your will for our life if it includes this? If it includes, I live, but I can no longer speak clearly. So I've got to find another way to serve Jesus Christ because I can't get up and do what I'm doing right now. We had, to, we had to struggle through that. And, and God took us on an incredible journey of deciding. We trust you. Now, why did we trust him? You know, we trusted him because of this verse. Romans 8, 28 says this. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But as we read this passage we wonder but how can we believe that god will bring good from this and it's because of the following verses it says if god is for us who can be against us well how do i know god is for me 
For he did not even spare his son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things, provide for us, do what is best for his kingdom and for us? And we just had to say, we believe that a God who died on the cross for me can be trusted. That's the, that's the bedrock, men and women. That is the bedrock that you've got to approach tough things in life. On that foundation, if you trust in how you're feeling right now, or you trust in whether God gives you messages while you're sleeping or something, you're going to be way disappointed. Number two, the second time that we struggled with this was more recently. We went through a situation, not with us, but with our kids. January 2012. Our son and daughter-in-law were expecting a little boy, expecting a little baby to be born the very first week of February. And they learned in the fall that he had some genetic markers, they call it. Genetic markers, there were three of them that said this says he may have some genetic issues that could be life-threatening. And uh, so we prayed, and they prayed, and they were willing to take whatever God brought. But then the cool thing was, over the next few months, every one of those markers cleared up. And we all said, wow, obviously God is working, and this is good news. And finally, the pediatrician himself, he set my kids down in December, and he says, I think we are two thumbs up for a healthy baby. And, and, and in fact, not just one healthy baby, but at the same time, my, my daughter was expecting a little boy. So we had my daughter expecting a little boy in January, late in January, and my daughter-in-law expecting another little boy to be born about a week later. We're going to have these cousins that grow up. So we threw the big party. We bought gifts. We had matching outfits. Baby number one was born January, help me, 20, 20th. Thank you. Only, that's why you have wives. It's one reason I have a good one. January 20th, little Josiah was born over in Escondido. Just about three days later, five days later, that's why I have a wife. Five days later. Um, I may not remember the number of days, but I remember the phone call. My son called, broken, crying on the phone. And all he could say was, Mom, Dad, Andy, Andy died. Andy died in the womb about a week before his birth. And when Andy was delivered... Uh, we had a wonderful time of being able to hold him, and he was a beautiful little boy, but he had some genetic deformities that were incompatible with life. He, and you say, God, why did you do that? And why did you let the markers go away? Why did you get us excited? And then why did you crush our dreams? Especially my kids, but also us. But, you know, they, there's a saying that says... Uh, a parent is never any happier than their saddest child. And we experience that. But we had to struggle through with God. God, why? And you know, there's not a clear answer to that. Except trust me. Trust me. Don't build 
on promises of healthy babies. Build on the rock. Build on the fact that I am your God. I got, I got Andy under control. I believe Andy is in heaven today, healthier than any of us in this room. So what are you going through? What do you do, what do you go through in your life that causes you to, to begin to, it kind of, it's like the currents, the rivers crashing into the house of your faith. And, and you wonder, is my faith going to stand strong in a storm, a major, major storm? Or is it going to collapse? I say, I'm done with you, God. I'm done with you. Some of you in this room have struggled through this in your past. You may be here today for the first time because years ago something happened and you said, God, I'm done with you. But now you're sensing the need to come back. We at Seacoast want to be a home for those who have wandered away and want to come back, for those that have been lost and want to be found. It's okay to bring your pain, your hurts, your questions your doubts about God, bring them. Because the only reason we can have a faith that stands is if we dig down to this promise, he who did not even spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not with us freely give us all things? In other words, a God that loves you enough to send his only son to die for you is worthy of your faith. And a real faith will cause you to act on it. The way we think, the way we live, what we choose to do in every aspect of life, especially when it's tested, when it's rattled, has to rest on Jesus Christ. His words, His teaching, and His Word. And if we do that, you have a great promise. You can have the promise of eternal life, the promise of a changed life, and the promise of a faith that stands in the storms of life. Foundation is the same. So what's your foundation? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the foundation you've laid under us. Uh, Father, boy, at times I... At times I get distracted and forget what my foundation is. I question you. I doubt you. But I pray, Father, that, um, that we trust you. We build on Jesus Christ for our eternal life, our changed life. And even in the storms of life, we know that if we build it with our trust in you, that it will stand. It may shake around a little bit. We may have some pictures fall off the wall. But it will stand. Because you stand. And we rest in you. We choose to rest in you. Would you pray that? We choose to rest in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.